welcome to the Pharmacotherapy Podcast. My name is John Gums. I am a professor of pharmacy and medicine at the University of Florida College of Pharmacy. I also serve as a scientific editor for pharmacotherapy. Today, we are talking with Dr. Ashley Barlow and Dr. Brooke Barlow about their paper titled, Potential Role of Direct-Acting Oral Anticoagulants in the Management of Heparin-Induced Thrombocytopenia. Ashley is a PGY1 resident at the University of Maryland, and Brooke is a PGY1 resident at the University of Kentucky. Their co-authors include Travis Reinecker and Justin Harris. Dr. Sparlow, thank you for joining us today, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for your kind introduction, Dr. Gums, and it's a privilege to be here on the Pharmacotherapy Podcast. We really enjoyed delving into the literature for DOAX in heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, and we're excited to discuss our findings with you today. So let's start by sharing with us how each of you became interested in the issue of alternative therapeutic options for anticoagulation in the HIT patient population. Was this an interest of yours, or was it prompted by a patient case or a preceptor? Yeah, it's an interesting story. I'm pretty happy you asked. I was on my very first APPE rotation in the critical care cardiology unit with my preceptor, who was Travis Reinecker. We had a patient with HIT who was reluctant to taking warfarin, and our treatment team was inquiring about alternative oral options. I asked Travis if he knew of any available data for DOAX in this setting. He told me to take a search into the literature and summarize my findings as a simple drug information question. Well, when I began to delve into the literature, I unexpectedly ended up finding a considerable amount of supportive case reports and case series on this topic. And my simple drug information question turned into quite a lengthy analysis of my findings. However, there was only a paucity of articles that provided an in-depth summary of how to incorporate this great literature into clinical practice. So Brooke was interested in this topic with me, and we decided to make a narrative review to help pharmacists who are faced with this question as well in their clinical practice. Thanks, Ashley. In the introduction to your paper, you discussed the five phases of HIT. Please remind our listeners what those phases are and how the clinician would use available laboratory tests to differentiate between the phases. Sure, so the five phases of HIT is actually a newer concept that was established to really help in tracking a patient's progression through and subsequent recovery from HIT. So the first phase is known as suspected HIT, which is a diagnosis based on clinical grounds with the use of the validated scoring system, the 4P score, which takes into consideration the presence or absence of a thrombosis, the timing of onset of thrombocytopenia, ruling out other causes, as well as the degree of thrombocytopenia. And this, can, this test can stratify patients into low, intermediate, or a high pretest probability of having HIT. Now, in patients with a low pretest probability, no further diagnostic or therapeutic interventions would therefore be warranted. However, in those classified as either intermediate or high risk, the next diagnostic approach would be to perform an immunologic test in, in tandem with a functional test to improve the diagnostic accuracy. And this includes the enzyme-linked immunoassay, known as the ELISA, as well as the serotonin release assay, which is known as the functional test. So it's important to note that the results of these tests may not be available for a couple of hours or days after being requested. Therefore, it's important to initiate prompt treatment uh, in order to not delay, uh, not delay until laboratory test is confirmed. Now, once the diagnosis is confirmed, the patient is labeled as having acute HIT, 
which is a highly prothrombotic state and warrants urgent initiation of non-heparin-based anticoagulation. Following this acute hit period, we have subacute hit A, which is the third phase. And this is characterized by achievement of platelet recovery. However, both the functional and immunologic tests remain positive. After the functional assay becomes negative, but the immunologic assay remains positive, this is considered subacute hit B. Finally, once both the immunologic and functional tests become negative, the patient is considered to have remote hit. Brooke, thank you uh, for reminding us of the five phases of HIT. As part of your narrative review, you conducted a literature search of all relevant articles published on the subject. Please share with our listeners why you chose to begin your literature search in January of 2012, instead of going back further to possibly capture more data. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Gums, that's a great question. The way in which we established the time frame for our literature search was by evaluating the date of approval of the various DOACs. Dabigatran was the first DOAC approved in 2010, Rivaroxaban in 2011, and Apixaban was subsequently approved in 2012. We decided that starting our literature search at the time of Dabigatran approval in 2010 wouldn't provide clinicians enough time to adopt the widespread use of DOACs into clinical practice. Starting our literature search in 2012 would allow for sufficient time for clinician experience to identify the risk and benefits of DOACs compared to warfarin and potentially feel comfortable enough to employ them for off-label indications. Now, just a note, we did include the approval dates of edoxaban and vitrixaban, the newest anticoagulants, but there was no data available for these agents at the time of our review. Ashley, thanks for that and helping us understand a bit more about your methodology. Your literature search identified 27 articles that met your inclusion criteria, 21 of which were classified as case reports. How do you feel this impacted, if at all, the quality of the analyzed information? And does this in any way need to be taken into account by the clinician who is considering amending their institutional protocol for how to anticoagulate the patient with suspected or proven HIT? Yes, this is definitely something clinicians should take into consideration. Currently, the current strength of evidence to support the use of DOACs for HIT is quite low. However, we don't particularly see this as a detriment, given that it closely mimics the quality of data that led to the incorporation of Fonda Paranox into the 2012 American College of Chest Physician HIT guidelines, which was mainly derived based off case series and retrospective cohort studies. Now, practically speaking, the instance of HIT is considerably low, which makes it exceedingly difficult to conduct a robust, prospective, randomized controlled trial in this population. I think it's important to recognize that case reports are important, relevant, timely pieces of medical information that can help advance the treatment of disease stage such as HIT that are relatively rare. Given that most of the data consists of these case reports, institutions looking to implement DOACs should take into consideration the heterogeneity of the current data, including which DOAC was used, at what dosing regimen, the timing of initiation, and what patient populations were currently excluded. Most importantly, given that there's still a gap that remains, any institutions looking to implement DOACs should also publish their results and contribute to the literature. Great recommendation, Ashley. Thank you. For years, the guidelines in this area have offered either agatroban or bivalrudin, direct thrombin inhibitors, or daniproid or fondaparanox, anti-10A inhibitors, 
as treatment options for anticoagulation. Most institutions have adopted agatraban, but it is not without its limitations. Would you please discuss with our listeners how the use of agatraban can complicate the laboratory monitoring in a patient with HIT, as well as confuse the clinician who is attempting to bridge their patient to oral anticoagulation with more traditional warfarin therapy? Sure. So I would definitely agree with you that Argatraban has been widely adopted as one of the first-line agents for HIT in many institutions. However, due to its niche indication in HIT, its infrequent use can often leave many clinicians unaware of the complex monitoring and interactions between Argatraban and coagulation assays. Now, just to start off, actually all direct thrombin inhibitors can elevate the INR, but this is particularly true for Argatraban because the high molar ratio concentration necessary to effectively inhibit thrombin inhibition can elevate the INR to a higher degree. Now, this elevation in the INR can complicate the transition to warfarin because if clinicians use that standard INR range of two to three, when bridging patients with Argatraban, the INR can appear within therapeutic range. However, once the Argatraban drip is discontinued and the effects on the INR dissipate, the INR will therefore become subtherapeutic, patients, placing patients at high risk for recurrent thrombosis. Now, this interaction does necess- necessitate that the target INR should be increased to 4 to 6 while bridging patients to warfarin with the Argatraban. And this should be continued until the drip is discontinued, the INR would be expected to fall within the range of 2 to 3. Although no standard protocol currently exists, the most common procedure, which is included in the package insert, is to start warfarin when the platelet count is greater than 150,000 and bridge with Argatraban for a minimum of four to five days until the INR is greater than four for two consecutive levels. At this point, Argatraban can be discontinued and testing a repeat INR at six hours to ensure that the INR remains therapeutic at two to three should be employed. Now, unfortunately, if this is not maintained within the two to three range, patients must be reinitiated and this process is repeated until the INR target is achieved. Now, if this is not confusing enough, this can often lead to extensive burdens on nursing requirements and monitoring, as well as for pharmacist monitoring, so which this only emphasizes the need for simpler anticoagulants in the management of HIT. Thank you, Brooke. In your publication, you did an excellent job of discussing the potential advantages of the direct-acting oral anticoagulants, or DOACs, as an alternative to traditional therapeutic options for anticoagulation in the HIT patient. Would you please share your thoughts on those advantages with our listeners? Thank you. It's absolutely undebatable that DOACs have pretty much revolutionized the field of anticoagulation in the recent years and are indeed an attractive option over the standard of care for HIT. First of all, for the management of HIT, the structural dissimilarities between DOACs and heparin minimizes the risk of any potential cross-reactivity with heparin anti-PF4 antibodies that could potentially increase the risk of thrombosis during the acute phase of HIT. DOACs have excellent oral bioavailability and a fixed dosing strategy, which minimizes the need for complicated nursing titrations of IV anticoagulants and the frequent dose adjustments that are required for warfarin. In contrast to warfarin, their rapid onset of anticoagulation effect without a corresponding reduction in protein C and protein S minimizes the risk of potentiating the prothrombotic state of HIT as well. 
Although DOACs may have a larger acquisition cost for some institutions, hospitals should consider the indirect costs of current treatments, such as the minimum five to 10 hospital stay required for parenteral bridging, the expenses for coagulation assays as frequently as every four hours to monitor parental treatments. These dilemmas can be mitigated with use of DOACs as they're available for initiation as upfront treatment or it can be simplified as a transition off parenteral therapies, which can expedite hospital discharge. For long-term management, DOACs eliminate the numerous inconveniences associated with warfarin. They have no routine laboratory monitoring required, fewer drug-drug interactions, and no dietary restrictions, which make them a more acceptable option for both patients and providers. I think this demonstrates that DOACs are a welcomed addition to our therapeutic armamentarium and can simplify the overall treatment paradigm. Thank you, Ashley. I think it's clear that through your review article that the DOACs are becoming more and more of a treatment option in this particular type of patient. Your literature review identified only one prospective trial published in the Journal of Thrombosis and Hemostasis in 2016, which happened to employ rivaroxaban as the DOAC. In that study, the authors treated some patients initially with the DOAC, while others were treated with the DOAC after first being exposed to an anti-10A inhibitor. Do you feel this study shed any light on the role of DOACs as a sole therapeutic option for anticoagulation in patients with HIT? And if so, what were the limitations of the study and how should clinicians consider employing the study results into their assessment of DOAC utility in the HIT patient? Sure. So I think that this is a great question as figuring out the appropriate dosing strategy and when to implement a DOAC in the course of HIT is very important. Now, the investigators of this trial performed a very well-designed, prospective, multi-center design that was really the first of its kind to assess DOACs for HIT. However, unfortunately, due to the slow accrual, the trial was terminated early, which, as previously discussed, does attest to the difficulty in performing a prospective trial in this population. Now, the study did meet its pre-specified power analysis, and of the 12 patients evaluated, half which received rivaroxaban as upfront therapy for HIT, and the other half who received it as a transition off of IV anticoagulation upon platelet recovery, Rivaroxaban was indeed effective as a sole therapeutic option to prevent reoccurrent or new thrombosis, with the exception of a single arterial event in a patient with pre-existing severe arterial disease. Now, in clinicians who are considering applying this data, it is very important to consider the study's limitations. Outside the small sample size, the study did exclude patients with severe renal or hepatic impairment and those at high bleeding risk. Also, the platelet count at the time of rivaroxaban initiation for patients who received upfront therapy was around 105,000, which therefore patients with severe thrombocytopenia at baseline may better warrant parenteral anticoagulation upfront, which allows for more precise anticoagulation monitoring. Finally, critically ill patients were largely underrepresented along this cohort. Based on these limitations, we don't think that this study alone does support upfront initiation for DOACs and HIT, but it is indeed hypothesis generating. Now, when incorporating the results of this study into our cumulative review, we did identify that about 50% of patients actually did receive a DOAC as upfront initiation in the treatment of HIT. Now, we believe with this cumulative data, clinicians could consider employing a DOAC upfront, but it really takes the right patient population, which is the clinically stable patient, 
at low risk of bleeding without limb or life-threatening thrombosis. Thank you, Brooke, for that important insight into the prospective trial that you identified in your literature search. There's been a number of references up to this point in the podcast to platelet recovery, and clinicians often use platelet recovery as a mechanism for therapeutic benefit associated with HIT treatment. Could you discuss this monitoring parameter and how platelet recovery may differ between traditional agents and the DOACs? Sure. So platelet recovery is actually one of the best diagnostic markers in the beginning to really assess for the therapeutic effect of our current employed treatment. As the functional and immunologic assays take about weeks to months to really become negative. In HIT, thrombocytopenia occurs secondary to a consumptive process in the formation of these immunologic complexes with platelets and these anti-heparin PF4 antibodies. So therefore, we can monitor platelet recovery as a surrogate marker for HIT resolution because as this immunologic reaction subsides, less heparin and platelets are heparin and PF4 antibodies are bound together. Therefore, we would expect to see a rise in the free or unbound platelet concentrations. Now, platelet recovery in most studies has been defined as above 150,000. Now, according to our review, platelet recovery for DOACs was achieved within a median of seven days in around 99% of patients. Now, in contrast, historic data for agatroban, platelet recovery was achieved in a median of three days. Now, at face value, although it appears that DOACs have a prolonged time to recovery compared to the standards of care, it's important to mention that the historic data for agatroban actually defined platelet recovery as above 100,000, which therefore makes it very difficult to make a direct comparison between these treatments. So generally, we consider after commencement of anticoagulation with a DOAC, there is a favorable platelet recovery response time within a median of seven days of treatment. Brooke, thank you very much. The growing literature in this area has led the American Society of Hematology to adjust their guidelines in 2018. Could you please speak to that briefly and share with us whether you feel this is significant enough to warrant individual institutions to reconsider their own internal protocols? This was certainly a timely publication with respect to our review. The integration of DOACs into the 2018 American Society of Hematology guidelines has been a major therapeutic advancement in the management of patients with HIT. The guidelines currently recommend that in acute HIT, DOACs or Fondaparinox are reasonable options in clinically stable patients at an average risk of bleeding. In subacute HIT type A, which as a reminder is following platelet recovery, the guidelines suggest that treatment can be employed with a DOAC over warfarin unless contraindications listed for the DOACs in the venous thromboembolism indication in their package inserts are present, for which their use would not be appropriate. This was given a conditional recommendation with a low certainty of evidence, which actually mirrors the strength of evidence that the authors also give to the current standards of care, such as Argatroban. We believe that specific institutions should consider this as a welcomed addition to the therapeutic armamentarium of HIT. Now that guidelines have implemented these agents, there is greater flexibility in the therapeutic options, which enables clinicians to tailor treatment based off of patient-specific and institution-specific factors. Thank you, Ashley. There's been a number of references up to this point in the podcast of the limitations of the data, including the cohort populations that were studied. For institutions that are considering a reevaluation of their own internal anticoagulation protocols in the HIT patient, it's important to understand the limitations. 
What do you feel are those limitations, specifically as they apply to cohort populations, including the critically ill, the renal, the hepatic, and patients with arterial thrombosis? I absolutely agree with you. Those key patient populations that you just included were the ones that were largely underrepresented within the literature so far. So therefore, critically ill patients were largely excluded from the available data, and we believe that it's reasonable with these agents, given their long half-life of DOACs, it can really complicate the need for urgent surgical interventions and the fluctuations in renal and hepatic function that's often present in this patient population, which can place them at higher risk for bleeding with agents such as the DOACs. Also, critically ill patients can have altered bioavailability, secondary to the high vasopressor requirements in this population, or the relative gut edema, which can substantially impact the oral absorption and therefore therapeutic efficacy of a direct oral anticoagulant. At the time of our publication, there was also a paucity of data for DOACs in limb or life-threatening thrombosis and arterial thromboembolisms. Now, we don't fully know as to whether or not the use of a DOAC in this population would be effective. However, the data is just limited at this time. And the clot burden can be substantially elevated. Clinicians may consider instead using a parenteral anticoagulant in this setting in order to have more objective monitoring parameters to have achieved therapeutic efficacy in terms of anticoagulation. Now, with respect to end-stage renal disease, there, this is a niche population for the DOACs with emerging data currently outside of the use of thromboembolisms. However, I think that more data is needed in order to really employ them in this patient population. Brooke, thank you for helping our listeners appreciate the application of the information that you uncovered. Finally, and maybe or possibly the most interesting question for the podcast has your work in this area, including your detailed review of the literature and analysis of the data, resulted in your respective institutions changing their own protocols for how to anticoagulate the patient with HIT? At the University of Maryland Medical Center, where I'm currently completing my PGY1 residency, I reached out to the anticoagulation specialist, Dr. Zachary Noel, and he actually shared with me some interesting things. Dr. Zachary Noel mentioned that DOACs have been implemented into their heparin-induced thrombocytopenia guidelines since 2018 as an alternative to warfarin once patients are stable and ready to transition onto oral therapy. The findings of our analysis only further support the practice at this institution, and they are relooking at their guidelines to assess for additional patient populations that may be candidates for DOACs now that the guidelines are available in the American Society of Hematology guidelines that outline specific patient populations that would benefit from a DOAC. So here at the University of Kentucky, DOACs have not yet been added to the official treatment pathway. However, given the uh, various committees that really would have to sign off on such changes, but our hematology group is very excited about the data and the guideline updates. And as such, they've been recommending it on a case-by-case basis when the patient and treatment scenario presents itself. Now, we are anxiously awaiting, actually, at our recent PNT committee, we were discussing that a study is currently recruiting at the Massachusetts General Hospital that's designed to prospectively evaluate the safety and efficacy of rivaroxaban for HIT, and we're hoping to bring these results to our next PNT committee to discuss further adding DOACs into the treatment paradigm for HIT at our institution. Ashley and Brooke, thank you for your time today and for sharing your expertise and insight into an evolving therapeutic area. I enjoyed reading your paper in pharmacotherapy. Of course. Thank you, Dr. Gums. It was a pleasure to be on the show with you and speak with you today about our findings. Thank you for having us.